Grow CFO is where finance leaders grow together. Join thousands of like-minded professionals using Grow CFO to access the combined knowledge and experience of the finance leader community. You can join us today at growcfo.net. Hello and welcome to the Grow CFO Show. I'm your host, Kevin Appleby, and today I've got with me Asif Ahmed. Asif is from an organisation called the Finance Department. Asif, welcome to the show. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you. Very nice to be here. Asif, what does the Finance Department do? So what does the Finance Department do? So the Finance Department is a uh, a platform that we set up uh, as part of... So I, I run an accounting firm called Acclivity Advisors and and. And the finance department came as an extension to uh, a book that I'd written called The Finance Playbook for Entrepreneurs, um, which I wrote towards the back end of last year and was very well received. And that book basically aimed at talking to finance professionals and entrepreneurs really around things like how to set up a finance department, what is best practice, you know, what are the kind of lessons, the 10 or 11 lessons that you can t- take from you know, reading this book without having to incur massive fees with an accountant or a or lawyer uh, and, and be pretty confident that you're on the right path. Now, taking that philosophy forward, we set up the finance department as an extension to that to say, okay, well, an, a sole entrepreneur is not the only person that really can benefit from this knowledge. Um, we, we should really try and democratize as much of this knowledge as possible onto a content platform called the finance department. Um, and so what we've built there is effectively a, a repository of content where the content is all generated from common mistakes that we see entrepreneurs and CFOs making, uh, common questions that we see entrepreneurs and CFOs have of early stage businesses. Uh, and we go to some of our best colleagues and associates to say, all right, the time's up to stop charging for this stuff. We need to make a video on this because enough enough people want to know about this and we, we don't want people to be going wrong. Yeah. Uh, and so, so, so content is the first, first sort of iteration of what we're doing there. And then hopefully we're going to build that into a community that, uh, you know, hopefully, uh, CFOs and entrepreneurs of early stage, primarily technology businesses can go and learn and upskill. Yeah. So a lot of what you're doing is putting across financial common sense or awareness to non-financial people. Would that be mm-hmm. right? Correct. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's kind of the elephant in the room, actually, because, um, particularly with the kind of audience that we're speaking to, which are the, the earlier stage entrepreneurs. So, you know, they're, they're typically pre-funding, they're pre, uh, revenue sometimes even. And, and really it's the person that has the most maths experience that ends up being the finance person. And so that person may well be a million miles from finance, but they end up being the finance person. And so, so what we're trying to do is sort of demystify these concepts for non-financial people, really. Yeah. So what's the commonest thing that you're telling people? Oh, it really varies. And so it, you know, it starts as early as, you know, what are the differences between different types of entity, whether it's a limited company or a, or a partnership and how, what, you know, what are the decision rules? In, in coming up to those decisions. Um, latterly, it then boils down to things that are more technical. So things like VAT, things like PAYE. Um, and then, you know, as companies grow, we then get into slightly more technical things even than that, which are things like option schemes and fundraising mechanisms and grants that might be available. And, you know, and, and, and there's a, the whole spectrum. There's, there's, a, there's definitely a set of questions for every stage. Um, but what we're really trying to do is to take away the, 
I heard from my mate uh, diagnosis that, uh, yes. that, we, that, that we get quite a lot um, in, the, in the accounting business, which is a friend of mine runs this company and they told me that I should be doing X. The most common example of that is uh, is when a, a new business will come to us and say, I would like to structure my income as salary and dividend because my friends tell me that is the most tax efficient way of, of structuring my income without recognizing the prerequisite of obviously having to have made a profit to be able to declare a dividend and, and things like that. Yes. Yeah. So that, that's certainly an area where there is a, there's a lot of hearsay around. And the, the one that you mentioned around salary and dividends is an area there's been a, a lot of change in tax law in Correct. recent years. Correct. So I guess the idea of somewhere that you can you can just see that right information. And traditionally, that's something you'd be going along to your chartered accountant in practice, asking for all of this advice, mm-hmm. and it will be going on to the, the bill that you were talking up with him. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. No. So what we're, what we're trying to do really is trying to empower entrepreneurs and, and CFOs and non-financial CFOs with the ability to ask better questions. And so really the idea is that you're not going to completely do away with the need for an advisor, but actually you're going to get the most bang for your buck from that advisor because you're going to come to them with better questions rather than a question, which is really uh, a, a cry for teaching. Can you please teach me about this topic? As opposed to, uh, can you help me navigate between the two options that I have whittled down for myself? Right. Yeah. So I, I can see a huge amount of sense in that approach. Typically, uh, an entrepreneur that's not greatly financially literate, you need to put some financial information in front of that person at regular intervals. What's, what sort of information do you think that person really needs on a kind of weekly, monthly basis? Yeah, that's a great question. And we see this more acutely than even maybe the average SME advisor because a lot of our clients tend to be uh, supported by venture capitalists or, or investors who yes. demand this sort of reporting on a more regular basis. And so, you know, it's, it's really interesting because, uh, so many things that entrepreneurs would often consider as a problem for another time uh, tend to present themselves much more quickly um, when they have external stakeholders like an investor. So things like, for example, what is your cash flow? You know, that that is a, a typical question that we, we, you know, we end up wrestling with with entrepreneurs because they sort of they kind of understand the need for it, but they don't really understand why everybody's so concerned with it. And you have to sort of translate to them that a PL is not the same as a cash flow. And, and actually cash flow is sort of like the lifeblood of your business, whereas the PL is sort of more of a performance-based metric to see as to whether what you're doing is even worthwhile doing. And and so, you know, what we what we end up having to uh, talk to entrepreneurs a little bit about a lot of the time is that, you know, being able to sell, buy something for five pounds and sell it for ten pounds doesn't necessarily mean that you have an operationally strong business. Um, you know, even if you, you as the entrepreneur believe that that is all it takes, uh, it's not often the case. Uh, quite. Absolutely. And if we're looking at those stages where you've got the venture capitalist in place and so on, it's probably you need that venture capitalist because at that stage, your business is probably still making a loss. Correct. Yes. Yeah, you may correct. well be selling something for £10 that it costs you £5 to either buy or make. But 
you're investing more than that five pounds profit back Correct. into the business. And the reason you brought in the investor is because you want to do that. The investor knows that in the long term, this business is profitable because they've seen the sums back at some point that they invested. Mm-hmm. They, I guess, want to know, okay, I've put in £50,000. I was only expecting 25000 of it to have been spent by this stage. There should be yes. 25000 still in the bank that's paying the bills next quarter. What does the cash flow look like for next quarter? Is there £25,000 there to pay the bill? Yeah. Right, exactly, yeah. exactly that, and you know it's and so much of beyond just satiating the uh, the the investor, it so much of it sort of falls into a battle rhythm of how the company then goes into thinking about fundraising moving forwards. Because you know if you've got ten months of cash in the bank account, you don't really want to be waiting until month nine to reignite the process of fundraising again, and so you know. Have you got an adequate forecast as to when month nine is going to be based on, you know, the maybe the seasonality of your inflows and your outflows? Yeah. Um, you know, because you don't want to really be fundraising at a time where you've got sort of 30 days of cash left. And, and you know, that in itself is normally a good enough driver for people to wise up to the process. And let's face it, when you put the proposal in place in the first place that got you that funding, whatever you put together as the forecast was only a best guess. Mm. And the, the truth is that the real world comes along and gets in the way. Correct. Costs can go up and down. Sales Correct. volumes can go up and down. So things change. So you, you should be keeping on top of where's my performance versus what that original forecast was. And I think potentially, once vary from business to business, but reforecasting. Absolutely. And, and you know, the last two years have been maybe the best boot camp for people to learn those skills because um you know so much of the accepted wisdom basically fell off a cliff and you know revenues were suddenly no longer guaranteed and expenses were almost certainly still guaranteed and it really began to test people's business models and ability to to navigate their ways out of it because you know those that were accustomed to this sort of forecasting and reforecasting were not i wouldn't say in better off but they were certainly they, they had a slightly quicker start than than others who who maybe were sort of resting on their laurels to say actually well we've got a pretty uh, straightforward business that does the same thing year in year out and so we, don't, we never really felt the need to get involved with um, budgeting or forecasting and reforecasting and so and those businesses really suffered because you know two or three months in a you know in the last two years and in a lockdown environment were really critical and we actually sent out an email to all of our clients during that time to say, uh, inaction is in itself an action uh, at this time, because you, you are consciously making the, the decision. There's nothing you can be doing right now. And so I think these are all lessons that have stood the test of time. And they just got lost somewhere along the line, uh, along the way, where I think we've, we've sort of enjoyed a relative period of prosperity uh, over the last five or six years, maybe slightly, maybe slightly longer than that. And and there were businesses, again, particularly in our industry, funded by venture capitalists or private investors, where sort of resilience metrics began not to matter as much. And that really put a lot of entrepreneurs into bad habits. And and certainly those CFOs or finance professionals that came from traditional corporates or uh, or traditional businesses that then decided that they wanted to work in the technology space, there was suddenly a mismatch of, you know, I'm used to doing 
forecasts and budgets and you know variance analysis and things but, but seemingly in this technology space none of that seems to matter but all of a sudden all of these things have become important again uh, which i think is only a good thing yeah i think one of the key things to that i'd be pointing out is to your ceo is that fine you get your PL account you get your balance sheet once a year probably by the time somebody's produced it for you it's the date on it was three or four months ago exactly well, Actually, great, there's some lovely information there, and it's going to be filed with the regulatory authorities and so on, but it doesn't really tell you much in terms of business decisions. You can't change what happened three months ago. If that was the end of a year, you certainly can't change what happened 15 months ago, which was the start of a year. Absolutely. Absolutely. You can change what's going to happen next week, the week after, the week after that. So I do think the most important thing is the the forecast or the budget that's looking forwards. Yeah, no, absolutely. And we and we're very transparent with certainly the clients in, in the advisory business where, you know, the statutory accounts, as important as they are legally, they're almost irrelevant from the perspective of how you operate your business. Because it is a snapshot in time at some point in the past, which as you say, it really holds very little relevance to what you should be doing today or next week. So no, I agree. I think that, you know, that that sort of uh discipline of looking at the figures live as well as into the future is really what separates, I think, a good finance team and a good entrepreneur from from ones that are often treading water. Yeah. There must be something as well in the link between some of the non financial information you've got to the financial. Mm. Now, almost by the time you get a pound or a dollar sign in front of a number, it's become history. Mm. It's happened. Mm. The numbers that you might want to bring in that, that don't have the financial signs in front of them are probably some of the ones you really want to be looking at because they're going to yeah. tell you what's going to happen in the future. Absolutely. And again, again, um, you know, so much of this is uh, the early stage technology world is such a great petri dish for these sorts of experiments because you know, we have companies that utilize quite a lot of non-financial data actually to, to sort of forecast what may happen in the future, whether that's through online, um, activity and, and, you know, assessing what kind of metrics they may be reaching from a, you know, social media standpoint or from a marketing data standpoint. And, you know, how many people are actually, how many eyeballs are looking at their product and how can they translate that into future revenues or future interest? Uh, are all things that find their way into dashboards. I think what we are quite aware of, really, is that there's definitely a link between them, but to not get too hung up on them to the point where you're overlooking things like the basics in place of those non-financial metrics, because, you know, there's there's not a whole lot of bills you can pay from 10,000 followers on Instagram, you know, whereas at some point you need to just actually be able to make the bridge between, okay, how much relevance do we actually give to these metrics? Because ultimately, if they're not feeding the greater vision of the business or the day-to-day cash flow, working capital of the business, uh, it does end up then falling into a bit of a vanity metric. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think something you, you've got to look at as well, as, you, as you're growing, you can say, well, hmm, yeah, I've got what I call customers, mm-hmm. then I've got prospects, but I've got suspects before prospects. Yes. and. Now, I'm looking to possibly grow my business hugely. I want to grow the business by double or whatever. 
that let's make it easier for the time being 50%. So yeah. if I can increase my customers by 10%, actually let's start at the beginning. If I can increase my suspects by 10%, yeah. and then rate increase as well the conversion rate of suspects into prospects by 10%, mm-hmm. then increase the conversion rate of prospects into customers by 10%. Yeah. Then maybe look at my customers and say, well, can I increase the number of things that they put on order by 10%? All of those 10% suddenly give you the 50% you're looking for because that's all that. You've got to be measuring and know the effect at every stage of that journey. So if if you really want to push that bottom line financial information, You've got to know the link all the way back through everything you're doing. Absolutely, absolutely, and yeah, and that again is is you know we 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 often refer to that as the funnel. You know, what is top of funnel? Is it something that someone has seen on a social media post, or is it a billboard in the older world, or is it a TV advert? And you know, how does that translate into a pound coin actually hitting our bank account? And you know, what is the length of that funnel from from that entry point to the point where we're actually regenerating something from that? Is is a hugely important journey for a entrepreneur or a finance team to be aware of. You know, particularly with when you add in the financial layer of okay, well, we can certainly see this set of eyeballs going from whatever that first capture was all the way down to transacting. But what did it cost us to get that from one place to the next? And that is where we get into the realms of sort of things like unit economics, where you know, you, you've worked out what your funnel is so well to the point that you realize actually it's costing us more to get them there than we're actually getting from them in the first place. And then you sort yes. of, you, you know, you end up with a, a fork in the road saying, okay, well, is this worth it? And can we make it worth it if it's not worth it? And, you know, what, what levers can we crank to change the equation that we're seeing at present? And so many of our early stage businesses that we work with uh, end up going through a sort of iterative re-rating process of, Okay, well, it may have cost us fifty pounds initially to win this customer. What can we do to make sure that the next batch of a hundred customers are only costing us thirty-five pounds, for example? Or actually, if we spend sixty pounds a customer, we may get five hundred more customers. You know, that sort of experimentation really can only be done when you have a full appreciation for exactly what the individual levers are and and how it all washes out. I think those some of the financial numbers a lot of people don't have a good grasp on. I certainly think if I, if I was talking to the senior team of a, a relatively new business, I'd be saying, well, what is your customer acquisition cost? Mm. And mm. if I get a load of blank faces around, take them through, well, what do you do to acquire a customer? Who does yes. what? Yeah. And mostly people's time. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I say to the average CFO, CEO, well, hang on, how much time do you spend talking to prospective customers? He says, well, about half my time. Okay. What's your salary? Exactly. Yeah. Right. Half yeah. your salary plus some on costs plus half your IT costs, etc. Well, and how many customers do you talk to in that time? Okay. 20 customers. Right. Fine. Yeah. Got a, an indicator of what that cost per customer is now, haven't we? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's often those recharges that people are slightly averse to, to including. Uh, they sort of say, well, the raw material was X and, and the revenue is Y. And so, you know, Y minus X equals my, my gross profit. But actually, as you say, you know, if the CEO is spending 
all or most of their time on generating business and speaking to customers, then there's no reason why that shouldn't go into that same calculation. Um, And similarly, also, you know, you may have three quarters of your office space on the sales team. And so, you know, why shouldn't rent be included in that cost of acquisition? It becomes very, it becomes what what I'd call output costing or activity-based costing is one of my favorite things to do. And I've been on so many consulting projects over the years where I've come in and I've been looking at, well, hang on, we know what we're going to do to change things. We think we know what we're going to save. Well, actually, we need a baseline. Go to the mm. finance department in the organization, and there'll be some pretty big organizations, and you say something like, okay, what's your accounts, proce- accounts payable process cost? Mm. You get a blank look. You don't have yeah. a clue because it's not yeah. a line on the P&L account. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I, I wouldn't say that that's the level of detail that we go into with the, some of the smaller companies, but certainly that that discipline is something that we're definitely trying to instill to yeah. say everything can be uh, quantified yeah. if you have the discipline so, to think of things that way. Yeah. First, very important one we've mentioned, which is what does it cost you to acquire a customer? Mm. Another interesting is potentially customer lifetime value. Correct. Yes, correct. Absolutely. And, you know, that again, is a very important metric, not least for our clients who are trying to go out there and you know generate business and revenue, but certainly also because that is one of the key metrics that early stage investors look at also to say, okay, well, you know, what is your bounce rate effectively as, as a company? Do you, do, you, do you manage to retain customers so that they are forever purchasing that product and service from you? Or do they sort of have this initial uh, curiosity about your product and then they never hear you, know, you never hear from them ever again and that lifetime value of really understanding exactly what it has cost us to generate that customer and how much over the lifespan of that relationship are we likely to generate from from that customer is, a, is an absolutely key metric yeah and it's a tricky one to calculate you can get your head around as well you i'm thinking of our own business in gross cfo where a lot of our customers are members and it's an ongoing membership. Well, mm. we've got new members every week. We've got members that leave us every week. Yeah. yeah. But we've got some members that joined on day one that we announced the premium membership that are still members. Yes. So yes. another month goes by. It yes. Could be that the average length of membership has gone up by you know, another week. Yes. Simply yes. Because yeah. we've had some more people that haven't left exactly so, yeah yeah yes yeah. but you need your you need to get your head around that number mm-hmm. because if your acquisition cost is 35 pounds but that person you acquired remains a customer for three years well it's not just the profit from one sale you're taking into account absolutely yeah no, exactly and then you know just to allude to that same point then you know just to understand churn in a business you know particularly with either membership businesses or subscription businesses and things like that, you know, a churn is such a massive element to be aware of, you know, in terms of how often, what percentage of your customers are actually dropping off as opposed to joining you. So what is your sort of net net churn, as it were? So, that, you know, these are, and what's great about um, the technology space is that because venture capitalists are having to put a framework together in terms of what they consider to be an investable business, these metrics are becoming increasingly more adhered to, shall we say, from a, from an early stage. And companies are really beginning to get to grips with the fact that these are things that are important and worthy of uh, tracking. But no, certainly both lifetime value and churn, both uh, hugely valuable metrics uh, for the right types of business. Yeah. So 
what else do you think is is really worth looking at for those fintech startups? What other things should should they be be really monitoring on a regular basis? Yeah, I think there's a whole raft of things. I think that you know before I'm not sure there's necessarily a black and white answer for that question. But actually, if we take two or three steps back, it really is about making sure that uh, whether it's a fintech or an otherwise early stage business is to recognize really early exactly what they are solving for. And I think a lot of the time that explicit question is never met with an explicit answer, which is why you end up with having a sort of any goal will do kind of mentality when it comes to moving forwards. So when revenue is up, we'll talk about revenue being up. When profit's up, we'll talk about profit being up. When customer numbers are up, we'll talk about customer numbers being up. But what are we actually circling around in terms of an, a thesis as to what we're trying to solve? Um, and I think that that discipline then automatically prints out for you what you should be uh, monitoring and keeping on top of. Because sometimes you'll realize actually it's hugely liberating. You know, if, I, if I'm solving for impact, which is an, a great one that we get uh, we get told nowadays quite a lot is that we're solving for impact and you know that's very laudable but what is impact clients will often have a good answer for that question they will say we want to make sure that some percentage of the total available market is going through our our website or our app or our product and that's fine uh, in which case you know you are effectively dispensing with all other metrics because that is your core thesis uh, which is fine. But then you know for a fact that, you know, for example, your funnel, your churn, your lifetime value are all things that you should be regularly uh, keeping on top of. Similarly, we have other businesses which, you know, for all intents and purposes are lifestyle businesses, family run businesses, and they are there to serve the shareholders. And when I say serve the shareholders, I mean truly serve the shareholders insofar as generate them an annual return in the form of a dividend or something. And so, you know, you may there may be some completely different set of metrics that you want to keep on top of as opposed to the business that's tracking for impact. You know, you may look at what is my uh, turnover per employee or what is my turnover per square foot of, of office space, you know, because I'm, I'm really looking to be operationally efficient because ultimately my goal and my reason for getting out of the bed every day is to make sure I maximize shareholder value in an annual or, you know, biannual dividend. And so I think the question is really more at the front end and then everything else kind of falls out of that. Which effectively says you've got to have a decent strategy broken down to a reasonably low level. Because mm. we're going to have impact. Great. Impact, that's my high, high level strategic goal that 20% of the market comes through. Well, which 20%? Yeah. What do we actually expect that 20% to spend with us? Mm. Mm. So... What does that mean by when are we going to get them through our business? Mm-hmm. Are we expecting them to stay around? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it brings us back to those initial things that we brought in. What's, what's the process of, of acquiring them? Yes. Yeah. And what's the process of retaining them? Because yeah. it's normally, I don't know, I've heard figures, various figures around this one, but quite often, People quote that say it costs ten percent to of the the acquisition cost to retain a customer. 
Yeah, I mean, I, and that does vary, I think, from industry to industry, yeah. but but certainly 10% is a good benchmark. You know, and it depends how how crowded your industry or your market is uh, for yeah. alternatives and what the sort of switching costs are and things of, of being able to port from, you know, if I'm going from, say, Apple Music to Spotify or Spotify to Apple Music, maybe my switching cost is not that high. And so from their perspective, they probably have to spend more than 10% on retaining their, their, their core subscriber base. And many other examples are the same. But But yeah, I think, I think more so than anything, whether you are an early stage business that is funded by a venture capitalist or you are a, an, a traditional SME that is there to maximize shareholder value, that question is very rarely asked of founders and co-founders, actually. So many, so many times we find that once that question is posed amongst three different directors, they come up with three different answers and they'd never, they'd, they had no idea that, that they all had opposing or even not opposing, but they didn't have the same answer as each other. And so many times that also then leads us to think about things like, you know, are you or the three of you, for example, in this case, are you in the right roles? Are you, you know, are you, are you sure you're on the same journey? Is this, you know, because you don't, the last thing you need is for all three, uh, founders of a business to be pulling in a slightly different direction to each other, because then you end up in that sort of any goal will do type mentality where you're really not achieving anything in the pursuit of everything. Indeed. Indeed. I, I think it's important to realize as well that if you've got more than one product, mm. are you really properly aware of the costs mm. of that, those, those products? Mm. Mm. Certainly uh, time has taught me that, that the, we've got a huge tendency to overcost the simple and undercost the complex. Mm. Mm. And if, if we're doing that and we've got two or three founders that have got slightly different views of things that don't properly understand the cost figures, you've got founder A will realize, okay, simple product. We need to push as many of those as possible because that's where we make the most money. Founder B, who's maybe undercosted the complex product a little bit more says, okay, no, we don't want to be pushing simple product. We want to be going for this higher value complex product sale and putting an awful lot of effort into getting these higher value clients and so on could be the wrong decision for the business yeah i really do think the common set of shared information or a common common financial education each of the founders is really really important yeah i completely agree but i I, you know with that then i have also seen founders of business that when presented with all of the stock information will still find a way of telling themselves a narrative that is completely opposite to what's being, you know, what's printed out on that piece of paper. And, and that again is another, is another, uh, question because sometimes what you find is that, you know, CEOs or founders of business are so uh, enamored with their own ability to create a vision or bring a vision to life that actually the reality of financial information or non-financial information almost feels like a bit of a hurdle or a stumbling block into their plans. And, you know, you, you, you present a, a CFO or a CEO of a, of a business where you say, look, you know, these metrics are not in line with what you're telling me is where you're headed. And, and they will give you a sort of esoteric version of the rea- of reality to sort of uh, to, to make to make things okay. And that in itself is also an interesting dynamic because, you know, sometimes it's some of that greatness that makes them the entrepreneur that they are. Uh, but yeah. how do you balance, how do you balance that with the yeah. ground reality of, you know, we run out of cash in eight months? Exactly. Yeah. And sometimes yeah. it is the, the gut feel yeah. that the entrepreneur brings that makes it the, the big deal. Exactly. So somewhere along the line, we, we've got a, 
a startup business. We're growing fast. We're going through investment rounds and so on. Now, you can come along and give some advice from the finance department, but at what sort of stage do you think to get proper financial information and get the proper guidance, then yeah. CEO's got to be recruiting his CFO? Yeah, that's a really great question. Uh, and one that we, in the advisory business, in the activity advisors, we're very forthright on, on, on that topic insofar as, you know, we sort of say that our USP as an accountancy firm is that we will recognize exactly when you should be using us versus when you should be hiring someone internally to take these things from us and, and, and actually yeah. do a, a, be- a better job. And, and it's slightly more formulaic with the sector that we operate in because the growth stages of, of the companies are slightly better defined by funding rounds. So we have a seed round or a ser- series A round or a series B round. You know, we're certainly not advocating for seed stage companies or even early stage series A businesses to hire a full-time CFO when resources are so tight. And, and kind of that is the space that we are trying to fill with the finance department as a product to say, yes. you know, at least that way anybody can come in and upskill themselves to the point where they can then get that work done by an accountancy firm. But certainly where a company is raising its first inst- a large institutional uh, round of money, we suggest that it is almost a deal breaker in our eyes to do that without having hired a CFO, at least from in the technology space that we operate in. And the reason being is because fundamentally, you know, you are now taking other people's money. Um, you have a responsibility and a duty of care to make sure that things like this are now no longer being done in a sort of cavalier way. So you want someone that at least has some, some knowledge and some experience of having reported to other people on finance and governance before. Um, and secondly, also it is the, it's probably the last time on a, on a sort of rocket ship business's journey that any one person or people can actually have their own stamp on how that finance department gets built and developed in terms of its processes, in terms of its personnel, in terms of its habits. When you get to the point where the company is so large or large enough that there are now that many more gremlins to solve before anyone can really feel like they are on top of it, you are really uh, handing someone a poison chalice. Um, And what you want to do is get someone in who is in slightly early but to the point where they feel like they have complete ownership of that that reporting line and that that section of the business um so that they can actually then become part of the sort of competitive advantage of the business moving forwards yeah i i think that's a very very true thing and if if you want to grow your business fast i think the sooner you bring in that proper finance person yeah you don't have to go from using an advisory service through to saying you've got a CFO now five days a week. Now, there are plenty of people that operate in the portfolio CFO space Correct. that may have Correct. two or three companies that they work with to provide the service. So you you could be taking somebody two days a week. Correct. Correct. No, absolutely. And yeah, absolutely. Just the the experience that person brings in, the the way you can shortcut certain things. I think absolutely invaluable to get the the CFO on board. Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah. We're, we're talking about some of those basic metrics. And my my experience is that if you if you're going to put some decent KPIs in place, then mm-hmm. it takes some time to actually go out there, find the data, work out the definition of the measure, start that regular drumbeat to being able to report it every week or every month or whatever the right frequency is for the particular metric you're talking about. 
Correct. Absolutely. And, it, and you won't get it right the first time either. And, you know, you yeah. really need and you need someone that has the eye to know um, why it doesn't look right in this instance, for example. And, and, you know, I think and again, as an accountancy firm, primarily, we recognize that there comes a lifespan where that sort of intelligence can be outsourced. Um, that, you know, that you really need someone that is incorporating their reporting with some of the things that they're hearing is happening across, you know, the other side of the office versus, you know, maybe the conversation they had over a coffee with someone from marketing and they're, and they're, you know, sort of aggregating all of that implied and, you know, explicit and implicit knowledge to actually then presenting the, you know, the, the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities and threats of, of the business. Yeah. That's where it comes back to talking finance to the non-finance people you had that conversation with somebody in marketing yes and it's then back to say well you do realize that that particular product is already costing us x and we're only getting y for it so then does that mean you're proposing we're not going to spend another 10 pounds per unit on marketing exactly. does exactly. that really make sense yeah no absolutely and you know and uh, some of these concepts i've written about in my book and um, is to try and make sure that well, not try, but the, the CFO, whoever's in charge of finance should, should document their processes and their thought process and their thinking in an easy to understand way for everyone in the company to be able to access that. And so, you know, I talk about, um, the finance CFO building what's known as a financial fortress. Um, yes. and the idea, the idea behind the fortress is that, you know, it has a watchtower where the CFO can sort of see any other threats coming from the, from the distance, but it also has a drawbridge where if you wanted to let someone in, like a regulatory authority or an investor to do some due diligence, you, they wouldn't be horrified by what they saw. Um, but similarly, the documentation that uh, a CFO or a finance head puts together should be understandable to the point where the head of marketing can understand what are the drivers that you know, that I, that affect me in my day to day business. You know, I use the simple example where, you know, invoicing, for example, from a, from a marketing, uh, uh head. So a, a head of marketing might be paying an invoice to a PR company, for example. Um, but they may not have appreciation for what the VAT quarters of the business is, you know, so should I pay this or should I receive this before the end of the month or at the beginning of the next month? Because there is a cash flow impact on, you know, that money going out the door. Those sorts of things. You cannot expect a marketing person to be intrinsically sensitive to. And so how, how did that sensitivity cascade from the finance department outwards? Um, and part of my thesis is that the CFO should not only, uh, document all of these things, but also should be largely responsible for the, uh, the sort of CPD that the company as a whole takes on. Yeah. There's a certain amount of building up the culture of the organization is you know, yeah. we pay invoices. Marketing, pay invoices. Okay. So you want to inst install a culture of marketing, paying every invoice in a particular way. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Okay. Yeah. 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 No, absolutely. Absolutely. And these, and these are all things that, you know, these are things that I, I think were often associated with processes for much bigger businesses. Um, yeah. some of, some of our SMEs clients and, you know, particularly when I first started out uh, as an advisor, I mean, these were nowhere near the radar of some of the entrepreneurs that we used to work with to say, you know, we're, we, all we worry about is survival, yeah. um, beyond. And then when we've, when we've cracked survival, we then, we then worry about growth. But, you know, these sorts of things don't feature on our day to day, but, but, but thankfully now increasingly they are. And we, we've talked about some of those useful financial things that the non-finance person needs to know that aren't 
or from loss account in the balance sheet. Correct. So we correct. said, that, look, this is cash flow is hugely important. Yeah. yeah. Being able to realistically forecast based on the metrics that you know, based on the pipeline you can see, based on the reaction you're getting to, to things that are happening out in social media and uh, yeah, the attention your business is getting, being able to forecast forward on those. Yeah, I, I mean, I've always... Your I, yeah. customer acquisition cost, we've said. Yeah. To, knowing your customer lifetime value is important. Mm, yeah. Uh, no, I think another one, I'm thinking out loud here, so another one is the 80-20 rule is very true mm. in most businesses. 20% absolutely, yeah. of your customers produce 80% of the profit. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and I think, you know, for the most part, entrepreneurs are largely aware of that sort of thing, but it's actually whether they do anything with that knowledge or not is, mm. um, is what is the key question, really. But no, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think that's, that's something, particularly when companies are smaller, they will definitely find that. Obviously, as companies grow, they, they maybe pivot away from that sort of dependencies, but, but often is, it is often the case that, you know, that, that that sort of ratio plays out. Yeah, but no, knowing the the twenty percent of your customers or the twenty percent of your products and customers yeah. that are generating eighty percent of the profit, yeah, is an invaluable piece of information. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that you know, I've always sort of in my own mind thought of KPIs is is a bit like they're a bit like double entry for accountants. You know, so when 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 accountants learn double entry, they sort of understand that okay, I get it. That if I do this there, then that's what happens there. Yeah. Um, and for a, for a non-financial person, KPIs are sort of the equivalent of learning double entry and sort of saying, okay, well, if I get a, if I get a like on my LinkedIn post there, then, you know, how does that translate into, or does it translate into anything in the bank account? Um, and, you know, that, that sort of three dimensional thinking of what's going on in the business is really what we're trying to get or what we're trying yes. to promote through KPIs. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure we could go on in this subject for, for <laughs> yeah, many more hours, but I, I'm conscious we've probably got to the length of most people's attention span on this podcast. Quite possibly. Quite so possibly. Tell me again the, the name of that book, if anybody wants to get a hold of it. Yeah, so it's called The Finance Playbook for Entrepreneurs, um, and it's available on Amazon. And uh, it's effectively how to build a, a finance department for a high-growth business. And, um, yeah, we were very fortunate that we, it was published in November and, you know, within a few hours, it became a bestseller across sort of many really? categories, which was uh, a huge surprise, but hugely flattering. And, and I think what people have really resonated with is that these are some core tenets of running a business, which is often something that either costs a lot of money because you have to pay for that advice or you end up having to get a lot of battle scars to get to the right answer. Um, and what and what the book I hope does is just levels the starting line for people a little bit. So, you know, rather than have entrepreneurs that have the access to the best, world's best advisors who are happy to sit and talk to them for hours about what their best options are. Um, what the book will do is, you know, for the length of a book, which is probably a long haul flight, um, will give you a good starting point, um, having only cost you about 11 pounds. <laughs> yeah. All for that sort of thing. And of course, the CFOs. Mm. We've got loads mm. and loads of that sort of stuff within within our platform with Grow CFO, the yeah. advanced stuff. Yes. Um, now, if you are an entrepreneur, well, great. Get a hold of us if we're doing this. If you're a CFO, well, we've got the next level in Grow CFO. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, no, we, I mean, we, I think that the latest stage 
content and knowledge is a whole different um, catalog of information. Um, what we're really trying to equip people with is is a starting point, and not not so much uh, you know what happens after that. Yeah, we'll we'll then go on and teach you if you if you've never done a fundraise before, we can take you through our fundraising simulator. Yeah, if you, if you want to build a strategy, we'll take you through you through the, the some strategy workshops and that's brilliant. Yeah, so Asif, that has been tremendous. Thank you. Thank for you so much, guest on the Grow CFO Show. No, thank you for having me, Kevin. It's been great.